0: We've probably seen these around, right? is those little shape puzzles for little kids. And it's funny to watch them try to solve those. They're great for development because sometimes they, they try to put, like, the square piece in the circle piece, and they learn, that's not where that goes. And then even when they figure out that the square piece goes in the square slot, the motor skills aren't always there, so they put it there, just kind of, like, slide it around until it falls into place. It's fun to watch kids try to make these things fit. Now, we look at that, and we could say, well, I could solve that puzzle in at least five minutes, right? That was a joke. Come on, guys. I'm smarter than that. All right. So like we could solve this real easily, but I'm gonna let you in on something. As adults, we never stop trying to solve puzzles that revolve around this idea of fitting things in places, right? The puzzles just look a little different as we get older. Case in point, take a look at this one. Uh, It's gonna be there. There we go. So, So this guy thought he was gonna fit, I'm sure. I don't know any truck driver that goes, not gonna make it, let's just gun it, like that doesn't happen. So he thought he was gonna fit, didn't solve the puzzle though, right? We still have these puzzles. Let's take a look at this next one. Yeah, so, so technically, technically the guy that built this bathroom, he did get all the urinals to fit, but I don't really know any guys that are gonna wanna pee cheek to cheek with one another. So I'm not sure the puzzle was really solved. Uh, let's go to one more. This one illustrates how we as adults, we can play loosely. What, what does it mean to actually fit someplace, right? You got a washing machine, a bicycle, a couch, all stacked on top of this old station wagon. Does it fit? Uh, eh, you be the judge, Right? As adults, we always have these puzzles about trying to make things fit. The reality is, though, most of our time isn't spent trying to fit, like, physical things into space. Actually, most of our puzzles are about trying to fit ourselves in this world. Where do I fit? Where do I belong? Where am I supposed to be? How do I navigate this world around me? I was listening to a podcast this week. It was, about, uh, it was about trying to minister to teens and 20-somethings in this concept of emerging adulthood. Really complicated, fancy stuff because I'm smart. It only takes me three minutes to solve those shape puzzles. Uh, this podcast, and anyway, they're researching this, and, and the, the researchers being interviewed, they're asked, what are the pain points of this generation, these teens and 20-somethings? Like, what are the questions that keep them up at night? And these researchers said, you know, all of our study, they lead us to these three main issues that that people, teens, 20-somethings are having. Questions of identity, who am I? Questions of community, where do I belong? And questions of purpose, why am I here? And then the interview got really interesting because the researchers, their parents of kids in their early 20s, they opened up a little bit and they said, you know what, as we were were hearing these, these kids and these teenagers and stuff say these things and reflecting on this, we realize as parents, We have those same questions. Like parenthood just brings those issues to the surface all over again. Who am I in light of these kids? Where do I fit? What's my purpose? And then that got me thinking because here at FCC in April, we're gonna be making some changes to our Sunday morning worship service modernize it a little bit. And some of our senior crowd has been asking some of the same questions. You know, you're you're trying to minister to, to families and people in their 30s and 40s and stuff. Where do I fit in? Where's my fit? Where do I belong here? So see, it really doesn't matter what age we are, whether if we're in our senior years, if we're in our parental years, if we're in our teens, 20s, emerging adulthood, whatever. We have these same questions that we ask ourselves. What's my identity? Who am I? What's my community? Where do I belong? What's my purpose? Why am I here? And the reason we all ask the same questions, regardless of stage of life, is because these questions hit at the basic yearnings and longings of the human heart it's a very human thing to wonder these things and the problem though that we get caught up in sometimes is we have a god on one hand who is the architect of life saying this is why i made you this is who i made you to be at the same time we have a cacophony of voices in our world telling us different things this is who you ought to be this is who we expect you to be and we're caught somewhere in the middle trying to navigate And that sounds really funny when you say it like that. Like, we've got God who made it all, who designed us. Of course, he knows what we are for, where we are, who we are, et cetera. And yet we listen to this world that, honestly, is just as confused as we are. But we do this to ourselves all the time. Thankfully, there are answers to these questions of who am I, where do I belong, what's my purpose? And we find them when we consider how we are made. This message is part three of a series called Made for More. And the idea behind this series is pretty simple. A lot of times what we settle for in life is less than what God made us for. And who we settle in being is less than who God made us to be. And that settling, like I said, a lot of times has to do with this tension, this voice of God on one side and this voice of our world and our culture on the other. And this tension is, is displayed for us pretty clearly and in a way that we can relate to in the life of a man named Solomon. This morning, if you've got your Bible with you, you can open up there. If you've got your phone, you can download the FCC Monmouth app, click the Sunday button on the navigation bar. It's got everything you need to get the most out of our time together today, including a Bible, your sermon notes, ways to connect with us after the sermon. It's a great tool to have. We're going to be looking at King Solomon's life, and we're going to start in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, like I said, Solomon's story offers us a very relatable picture of how we wrestle with our fit throughout life. It's not just one stage. It is a lifelong wrestling match. Now, we're going to get to Solomon's story, but in order to understand the tension that we're going to see at play here, I want to read a passage for you from the book of Deuteronomy. You see, when God called the Israelites out and he made them his people, he designed them and called them to be a different kind of people. We call it being made holy, meaning set apart. And in the way that they lived, in the way they structured their society, and in the way that they worshipped, they were just to look very different from the nations around them, like Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. Israel wasn't supposed to look like that. And to follow, Israel's king was called to be a very different kind of king. He wasn't to reign or to rule like the Pharaoh of Egypt or the king of Babylon or anybody else. He was supposed to be different. And Deuteronomy 17 tells us what this king of Israel is supposed to look like. It's kind of long, but bear with me. He says, "When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let's set a king over us like the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must not be from he must be from among your fellow Israelites." Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Now, here's the part I really want to zero in on. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. We'll talk about what that means in a second. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. And so all these stipulations, he's supposed to keep on like a piece of paper in his wallet that he can read every day so he knows what he's supposed to be. It's to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So three... Points I really want to zero in on because they're important to Solomon's story that we're going to read in a minute. First was that the king of Israel, not supposed to have a lot of horses. And that's not because God is against horses or anything like that. Today, we have horses for recreation. You might think horses are used for farm work or stuff. In the ancient world, horses had one purpose, and it was for military use. Horses are what your cavalry rode in on, horses are what pulled your chariots. Horses were basically like the Humvees and the tanks of the ancient world. And so God is saying to the Israelite king, you are not to be a warmonger. And you are not to go back to Egypt of all places to get these horses. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that the Israelites spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. So there's kind of this divine trade embargo happening here. So not to be a war machine. Second thing God says is, you're not to amass large amounts of silver and gold for yourself as king. And that one we can probably understand because money tends to corrupt and greed will lead us to compromise and to do things we might not otherwise do. And finally, he says, you're not to have numerous wives, you're gonna lead your heart astray. And by that, he means foreign wives because with foreign wives come foreign gods. Gods were very geographical at this time period, and so it was a practice of kings to go out and to make treaties and alliances and so on through marriage, because after all, that guy's not going to attack this country if his daughter lives here. So this was a political tool. It was very advantageous for a lot of kings, but it also meant that gods came with them and idols came with them, and God's trying to maintain the spiritual integrity of his people. So these are the stipulations for the king. And you need to understand, this is what the world expected of a king. He was supposed to have a lot of horses, supposed to be filthy rich, supposed to have a lot of wives. That's what a king does. But God says, if you listen to my voice, you will look very different from those around you, but you'll be better for it. So that brings us to King Solomon. Solomon was a young man when he became king. He was at the stage of life where these questions of identity and community and purpose tend to be at their highest. And so God comes to him in a dream and he says, Solomon, I will grant you anything your heart desires, just name it. And Solomon, displaying a great deal of wisdom, he says, no, I don't want power, I don't want wealth, I don't want my enemies dead. God, all I really want is to be wise and just so that I can rule over this people that you've entrusted me to. That is a phenomenal answer. God goes ecstatic. He goes, Solomon, I knew I picked the right guy. Here's what he says. 1 Kings chapter 3, this is verse 10. He says, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you asked for this, not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor asked the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I'll do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. Here's the stipulation. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I'll give you a long life. God is just pleased as punch with Solomon. He says, you've given the right answer. You are listening to my voice. You are being the kind of king I called you to be, that I made you to be, that I intended for my people. Have some wealth, have some honor, have it all. I'm happy, I'm pleased. Solomon's off to a great start. But as his life progresses, what we start to see is that wrestling match we talked about. As we said, it's a wrestling match that happens throughout life. And as Solomon enters different phases of his life, he continues to wrestle because on the one hand, he hears the voice of God calling him to be a certain kind of king, but he also hears the voice of the world around him and the expectations that they have for him as king. For instance, immediately after what we just read, we're gonna find out that Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is king in Egypt, that land they're not supposed to go back to. So right out of the gate, Solomon's already starting to compromise. Now, politically, this was a great move. That was a great alliance. In terms of Deuteronomy 17, this was not a good move. So there's the tension. A little bit later, as Solomon gets older, he's gonna build the temple of God in Israel. And it's beautiful, it's lavish, it's ornate. And he has this beautiful consecration ceremony. He brings in all of these sacrifices The people worship for like all day long. It's a beautiful picture of devotion. But in the very next statement, after that story concludes, we read that Solomon took twice as long to build his palace because it was twice as big as God's temple and presumably twice as costly. But it was expected that every every king would have a a symbol of his prestige in his palace. And so we we see the tension here. I know who God calls me to be, and yet the world expects me to be this kind of king. He gets a little bit older. Solomon's uh, prestige, it spreads, his reputation spreads, and people, foreign dignitaries, kings, they come to visit him. And there's this one lady in particular, the queen of Sheba, which was a small African nation. She comes to see Solomon. And when she hears his wisdom and she sees what he's accomplished in this nation, she's blown away. And this is a woman who worships idols and all kinds of other gods. But when she sees Israel and Solomon, she gives praise to the God of Israel. So Solomon's life is bringing glory to God. That's a great thing. But on the other hand, we also read that Solomon had amassed a vast fortune. And part of that was because of God's blessing, but part of that was also because of absorbent taxes and cheap slave labor. We also read that Solomon had numerous stables of horses. Guess where they were from, gang? They're from Egypt, that place that they were not supposed to go back to. Time and time again, we see that Solomon takes one step forward and he says, I wanna be the king who God calls me to be. And on the same time, he takes another step and says, I also kinda wanna listen to everybody else and what they expect from me. And he's caught in this tension. Who am I? Who do I really belong to? Why am I really here? And that's a tension that you and I probably feel every day. These questions, these existential wrestling matches. Where do I fit? For example, I I was reading a study from Barna Group this year. If you're not familiar, uh, Barna is a a Christian organization. They study trends and social data to kind of see what the state of faith is in North America. And they did this study on millennials. Now before anybody goes, ah, oh, millennials and their avocado toast, blah, blah, blah. Before we do that, hear me out, okay? Millennials statistically are proven to have firmer commitments about their Bible and to read it more than any other generation living on the earth. 87% of millennials today, uh, sorry, 87% of Christian millennials today read their Bible multiple times a week. Okay, so these are not people that doubt God, that question God. Christian millennials are very devoted people. But here's where this this study kind of raises some questions. 47% of them said that evangelism, this idea of going to somebody and sharing the gospel of Jesus in hopes that they believe too, that that is morally wrong. Now, keep in mind, this is something that Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28. So why would they say that? On the one hand, they have this firm commitment to God and his word, but on the other hand, they're just like, no, the thing Jesus told me to do is wrong, why would they say that? And it boils down to this idea of the different voices we listen to, because this same sample group of people was almost four times as likely to agree with the statement, if I disagree with somebody, then I'm judging them. Now, that's not true. Okay, we can just simply disagree, but the the zeitgeist in our culture, the the cultural mindset today is, if I disagree, I am judging. And there's not a whole lot of ways that we can agree with one another when one of the foundations of our faith is, there is one way to know God, there is one name to be saved by under heaven, and his name is Jesus. That's going to disagree with a lot of philosophies, ideologies, and religions. And so my generation is having this wrestling match right now. We hear the voice of God, At the same time, we hear the voice of our culture and we're caught somewhere in the middle. Again, before we get too quick to judge the future of our country and community and this church, let's remember, this is something we all wrestle with. There probably isn't one of us in here, even this week, who didn't hear that voice and say, you know, maybe, maybe I could compromise here, maybe I should be doing this instead, when all the while God's voice is saying, no, this is who I made you for, this is what I made you to do, this is your purpose. And these voices, they're very appealing. They tell us who we are. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be a husband and a wife. This is what it means to be a father. This is what it means to be a child. This is what it means to be black. This is what it means to be white. This is what it means to be young. This is what it means to be old. This is what it means to be gay. This is what it means to be straight. This is who you are. We'll tell you who you are, okay? And that's your community. That's who you belong to. You better follow that ideology. And as far as your purpose in this world, just pick whatever your heart desires You can live for yourself, you can live for your family, you can live for others, you can live for money, power, success, you can live to make a difference, you can live for a cause. Whatever your heart desires, that's your purpose, you pick. And there's this cacophony of just numerous thousands of voices telling us the answers that we think are going to fulfill the longings of our heart, and all the while, here's the whisper of God saying, here's who I made you to be. Here's who I created you to be, where you should fit, here's what I made you for. Those questions, as lofty as they are, they have solid answers. We can know what the creator of the universe has created us for and where our fit is because he's already told us, church. When we look at the Bible, what we find is a pretty clear picture of how we fit according to God. And it's really at the beginning of the Bible. It's like in the first three chapters, we can find the answers to all these questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? What's my purpose? You know, a lot of times when we read the creation stories, conversations devolve into to, you know, arguments about, well, is it a literal seven-day creation story? Did we evolve over billions of years? Is it something in between? And the whole time, I'm not even sure that's the point. Because these questions that we have, every single person longs for answers for, they're found in these pages. Personally, I think that's what God's trying to tell us here. That question of identity, for instance, who am I? That's in the very first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter in the Bible. In chapter one, verse 27, God says, let us create mankind, let us make him in our image, the image of God. That's who you are. You are an image bearer, of God, and that has nothing to do with your physical appearance. If it did, God must be skinny as a rail, because I had somebody today tell me, eat a sandwich. All right, this has nothing to do with appearance. Okay, in the the Bible, the idea of an image, it's this idea of a reflection or a representation. And so in that way, we might say, well, how can I reflect God? How can I represent God in this world? I mean, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's everything. And in those ways, we can't. But there are parts of God that we can reflect and we can represent in this world. In fact, he made us to do that. You take God's character, for instance. He is just. He cares about right and wrong. He cares about fair and unfair. He cares about the weak being trampled by the strong. He cares about people being oppressed by oppressors. God is just, and we can be too. God is loving. He's caring. He's patient. He's merciful. He is selfless. All of these are characters and qualities that you and I can live out in our lives. We can reflect the character of God the way we were created to. And his priorities, that's another thing that we can actually do too. Because as we said, God is just. He cares about the weak being protected. He cares about the strong sheltering the vulnerable. He cares about people worshiping him and glorifying him. He cares about mercy reigning. He cares about strength being subdued and held back so that love can win. God cares about all of these things, and we can too. We can hold those priorities in our lives and reflect God the way we were made to. You see, this is an honor and a privilege he's created us with. There is incredible value in being made in the image of God, and that value has been given to you. That's who you are. Kind of clarified a little bit. Let me explain it this way. I've got a nephew. He's 10. His name's Liam. He's, he's a wonderfully weird kid. I love him to death. He, uh, he's super into weather. I think his favorite channel on TV is the Weather Channel. Anytime there's a storm, he's like out the door, ready to see the tornado hit the ground. He's just into weather. He's into trains. And I don't mean like he likes to build train tracks and send them around. He can tell you the different models of train companies, he can tell you the difference between models based upon what year those models were introduced and constructed. He's incredibly knowledgeable about trains. I don't know where that's going to get him in life, but he knows trains. And he loves history. He didn't want Legos for Christmas, he didn't want video games for Christmas. He wanted us to get him books on the Titanic and the Great Chicago Fire. I told you, wonderfully weird kid. Here's what's really funny. His dad, my brother-in-law Kyle, the exact same way when he was 10. He was super into weather, he was into trains, he was into history. Kyle's in the Air Force, he lives in Oklahoma City, so he's deployed six months out of the year. Liam lives in Champaign, Illinois, they don't see each other very often. And yet there is something about their connection Liam is just this little spitting image of Kyle. He is the the reflection of who his father is. That's who we are in God's eyes. That's who he made us to be. We may not live face to face with God. We we may feel like we're distant from him at times, and yet we are created and called to reflect that love, mercy, compassion, justice, to carry those priorities in this world because that's who we are. We carry that responsibility, that privilege, and that honor. That's our identity. And the answers are the questions of community. That's answered in this story too. We read this interesting thing in Genesis chapter three. The man and the woman, they sin, the wheels fall off the wagon. They say, we gotta hide from God. And so they go hide in a bush. They weren't smart. So so they go hide in a bush. And then we read this passage. It says that God was looking for them. He was walking in the cool of the afternoon in the garden. Like the God that created the universe, like of all the places he chose to go spend his free time and take a stroll, he chose a, a garden, like He didn't choose like the galaxies or the solar systems or some far off distant beautiful plant. He chose some garden on earth. And I'm gonna tell you, he didn't choose that because of the scenery. He chose that because of who was in the garden, the man and the woman. You see, we don't worship a God who, who is distant and who sits in heaven and just watches kind of callously. We serve a God and we worship a God who is imminent, who is close, who desires to know us and for us to know him. And so God came and he, he spent time walking in the garden in the presence of the people because that's who we were made to belong to. We were made to be in fellowship and community with the God of the universe. He's who we belong to, he and his people. We have a place with him. And these questions of purpose, those are answered in this book as well. Genesis chapter 2, God creates the garden. It says he took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. If you were to read it, your Bible might say work it and take care of it or guard it or protect it. It's the same idea. Here's what's interesting. Old Testament, not written in English, is written in Hebrew. And those two Hebrew words for work and keep, Havar and Shavad. Shavad, Yeah, Havad and Shavar, that's it. Havad and Shavar. You don't need to know that other than this. The entire Old Testament, okay? Like every single page, every time those words show up, the only time they show up together are when worship is happening. They only show up, the only other place is in the temple of God where the priests are leading people in worship. Okay, so here's the basic rule of literary criticism. If two words always show up together in one context and there's one outlier that seems different, it's not. Okay, there's like a 99% chance it is just like all the other occurrences. So here's what that means. Adam, as he's doing his farm work in the garden, he's not just farming. His work is worship. The same way that these words mean worship in every other context. His working, his sweat, his tilling the soil, his creating, his planting, his tending to the garden, that is worship. Here's what that means for us. Our work is worship as well. Our job, our purpose in this world, what we use our energy and our talents and our time for, we may be doing a lot of different tasks, but at the end of the day, all of this is meant to bring worship to our creator. And we might scratch our heads here for a minute, we might say, well, hold the phone, okay, I... I work at Smithfield, or I work at OSF, or I work at the college. I might work at McDonald's. Maybe I'm a homemaker. Like, how is my work going to bring worship to the creator of the universe? And that's a valid question, right? And we actually have a whole sermon series coming up in June about that very topic. But I'll give you the quick and dirty version right now. How you work, whether you are lazy or you take care in your work. How you relate to your coworkers and how you relate to those you serve. Our general attitudes about work, okay? All of this factors into this relationship of work and worship. If I am lazy, if I hate my job, if I go in grumbling, if I treat people like dirt and I just don't care about anything, I'm probably not bringing glory to God through what I do. But if I take care and time of my coworkers, if I'm patient and I care about my customers, if I take care in my job and I care about what I'm making or what I'm doing or what I'm creating or what I'm cultivating, that is worship. That is what you were made for. These questions of who am I and where do I belong and what's my purpose, they're all found right here in the first three chapters of the Bible. Fast forward to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the future, what God's doing, what eternity looks like. Guess what human beings are doing? The exact same thing. They are made in the image of God. They are dwelling in the presence of God, and their purpose is to bring Him worship in their energies and labors. This is God's creation. This is how we were made. The problem, though, is everything in between those two points where God's trying to deal with sin and mess because this is where we live. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. We don't live in the courts of heaven. We live in Monmouth, Illinois in 2019, where we have a thousand million other voices trying to tell us who we are and what our purpose is and who we belong to. It's confusing, is it not? Sometimes it can be exhausting trying to answer these questions. This is what Solomon was dealing with. He was wrestling with these different voices trying to balance, here's who God calls me to be, here's who the world expects me to be, and here's the trick, don't balance it. Just listen to the creator. Listen to God and who he made you to be. This, this balancing act of exchanging God's voice for the other voices in our world, this is what we call sin. And a lot of times in church when we talk about sin, we, we kind of we get a wrong idea here. Because we start saying like sin is like a list of do's and don'ts. You know, my youth minister, sorry, I just spat all over the place. Communion's still good, I promise. My, my youth minister He used to have this this saying. He used to say, don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with girls who do. And if you can avoid that, you're going to heaven, right? Now, sometimes that's how we view sin in church. It's this list of things we're supposed to avoid. But a biblical understanding of sin is is a little fuller and a little more complex. Because it's not just like, don't do this stuff. Sin is more of a posture of life. It's this attitude in my life that says, "I'm, I'm not gonna listen to what God says I'm gonna listen to this other stuff I'm gonna listen to whatever whatever my world around me is saying and when I choose that path my life falls out of alignment with who he is and who he made me to be let me give you an example of what I'm talking about right now abortion is kind of a hot button topic and I have a lot of really opinionated friends anybody else with me okay no hands but I'll just assume we all have perfect friends Okay, still waiting. Anybody got opinionated friends? Hey, there we go. Three honest people. We have opinionated friends. And on my very opinionated friends love to make posts on Facebook because they think the world wants to know their opinions. And they're not always very kind in their comments. And their comments they're pro life people, but their their comments aren't really pro life so much as they are anti abortion. There is a distinction there. And they'll go so far as to not just criticize an idea or a practice, but to criticize people and almost demonize those who support a dissenting opinion. And here's what I mean when I say that, that sin is more than just do's and don'ts. My friends aren't doing anything morally or ethically wrong. They're not smoking, drinking, chewing, or going with girls who do. And yet, their attitudes and their words do not reflect the God that I know and read about in the Bible who does hate sin, but who is kind and merciful and patient and caring and slow to anger sinful people. And there's a disconnect here between who God is and how my friends choose to convey their opinions and their thoughts. They're believing people, but you see what I mean here? They're not in alignment with who God is and who he made them to be. How I respond, how I react, says something about how I was made and who I belong to and what my purpose in this world is. Sin is far more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It is a posture that says, I want my life to be in alignment with the God who created me. I wanna know him and belong to him and fulfill the purpose he made me for. Now all of us in here probably are feeling the tension right now because we don't feel that all the time. And a lot of times it's because we listen to these voices just like Solomon, these other opinions that say, no, this is your purpose. And we owe it to ourselves from time to time to take a step back and ask, am I living up to who he made me to be? Am I living out this this calling he put in my life? Am I fulfilling the purpose he made me for? Or am I listening to the world around me, the world that's just as confused as I am? Because if we listen to the wrong voices, gang, we will miss out on who and what God made us for. We were made for so much more than what our world can offer us. And we were made for so much more than the sin that leads us out of alignment with God. We were made for the blessing and the fullness and the fulfillment of living in harmony with our creator. Sin disrupts that. Take a look at Solomon's story again. We see what this, hap- what this looks like. I told you he wrestles throughout his whole life You know, which voice do I listen to? He reaches a decisive moment towards the end. I say a moment, it's it's depicted as a moment, but really it's an attitude that develops over time. We find it in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Now time out. What did God say? He said, don't marry a lot of women, especially from foreign nations because they have foreign gods. Solomon didn't listen. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Nevertheless, that may be one of the saddest words in this entire book. He heard the voice of God. He heard what God called him to and the kind of king he was called to be. And nevertheless, he chose to be the kind of king the world expected him to be. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. 300 concubines, that's a 1,000 women, by the way, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. To understand what the purpose of marriage was here, okay? This wasn't about sex. This was about power. It was expected that kings would marry uh, the daughters of other kings and other dignitaries. It was a way that you made alliances. It was a way that you made uh, trade deals, that you made treaties. Okay, so this was a politically advantageous move. This is how kings all over the world did business. But God said, don't do that. I will be enough. I will supply you. I will be your shelter. I will be your sword. Don't do that. And yet Solomon didn't listen. He listened to the voices of every other king and every other expectation in his world. And as a result, exactly what God warned him about happened. His heart was led astray. And idolatry comes flooding into Israel. And along with idolatry comes this moral decay and this ethical decline that we see over the next 200 to 250 years as the poor just get trampled on and demolished. The rich receive advantage in the court system because they're wealthy and influential. We see that poverty overtakes the vast majority of people as taxes just keep ramping up more and more. We see that, that hunger becomes pretty normal as famine sweeps in over the land. We see that foreign nations come in and strip Israel uh, of all of its wealth, all of its prestige and pride time and time again. We see that this nation actually splits in half in civil war not soon after Solomon's death and eventually both kingdoms uh, are conquered, people are taken as slaves, they're taken captives and moved thousands of miles away to foreign countries where they're outsiders and second class citizens. All of that happened because of this, because Solomon did not listen to the voice of God. Because he was not the king he was made to be, but instead chose to listen to the voices of every other king in this world. Guys, sin does not lead to fulfillment. Being out of alignment with God, it does not lead to the peace we yearn for. It does not satisfy the deepest questions of our longing. Who am I? Who do I belong to? And why am I here? Those answers are found in the voice of our God and our creator, when we listen to his voice, when we are, when we become, when we live who he made us to be, that's where life becomes satisfying and fulfilling. Not always easy, but fulfilling. I want you to know, even Solomon's story doesn't end in destruction. I mean, eventually it does, but Solomon's life actually has kind of a happy ending. I'm gonna finish this story out, First Kings eleven eleven. It says, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and I'm gonna give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, maybe it's not a sad word after all. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son and yet even then, I won't tear the whole kingdom from him but I'll give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. God says, Solomon, you stepped in it. You messed up. You did exactly what I told you not to do. And honestly, you don't deserve to be king anymore. You deserve to be ousted. You deserve all of this to be taken away from you. But I'm gonna show you grace. And I'm not gonna show you grace because of how good you are. And I'm not gonna show you grace because the good in your life outweighs the bad or because you're so impressive. In fact, I'm gonna show you mercy and it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's because your dad, David, he was faithful. His whole life, He never bowed his knee to any God except for me. And so because of his faithfulness, I will show you grace. I will overlook your sin. And God makes that same offer to us. I mean, a thousand times in our life, we're gonna listen to the wrong voice. We're gonna fall out of alignment from God. And yet he's gonna say to us again and again, look, I'm gonna show you mercy. Honestly, you ran away from me. You kind of deserve the consequences of your actions, but I'm gonna show you grace and I'm gonna show you love, and I'm not gonna give it to you because you're so impressive. I'm not gonna show you grace because the good in your life outweighs the bad because it didn't work that way. I am gonna show you my grace and my mercy, not because of anything it has to do with you, but because someone else was faithful. His name is Jesus. And he was sent into this world to live a perfect life, to be in alignment with God, and he did it. And it's because he lived his life in alignment with God that he was righteous in every sense of the word. And God makes us this deal. He says, if you will stop listening to the voices of this world, if you will come back to me, if you will just listen to my voice to be who I made you to be, to belong to me the way that you were created, to be the person that fulfills the purpose I created you with, if you'll just come back to me, I'll make you this deal. I'll take your sin, and I'll take your mishaps, and your your, your mistakes, and I'll take the wrong, I'll take all of it, and I'll make Jesus carry that. And I'll take his perfect life, that life that is in alignment with me, I'll give it to you, so that when I look at you, I don't see your mistakes anymore. And I don't see that misalignment, and I don't see those roadblocks and those speed bumps, I don't see that, that stuff. All I'm gonna see when I look at you is my perfect son. And we're gonna have union. And when you die and you stand before me on your day, I'm not gonna see all the mistakes and I'm not gonna see all the red ink. All I'm gonna see is my son Jesus and his perfection clothing you. And you will be innocent in my eyes and you'll live with me forever the way I made you be with me forever. That's the great exchange that God offers us. And it comes to us because Jesus was faithful. All we have to do is, say yes the deepest longings of our heart gang they're not fulfilled by the the things of this world we were made for more than that they come when we are in alignment with god through the person of jesus who god created us to be our identity when we turn to christ he reminds us you are the image bearer of god and i'll empower you to live that way Who we belong to, our community, we find that in Jesus. He says, I will bring you into God's family and I will reinstate you and you will belong to him and his people forever. Questions of purpose, why am I here? What is my job? How do I bring worship to God through what I do? Jesus, he says, I'll show you and I'll teach you. You follow me and my example and your life will be an act of worship that pleases God. How we were made, who we were made to be, it's found in Jesus, gang, and it only happens when we say yes to his offer. And this morning, we actually have a young man who's gonna make that decision today. His name is Cash, and he's young, but he's wise. And he has chosen to say, I want my life to be in alignment with God. I wanna know Jesus, and I wanna follow him with my life. I want what he's offering, and you are gonna watch somebody change today. And become the person God made him to be. And we wanna give you that same opportunity. Today, if you wanna join Cash in the baptistry and give your life to Jesus, be forgiven to find alignment with God and that peace and that relationship to be who he made you to be. I'm gonna be right over here. We're gonna sing a song and this is your chance to make that choice. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your patience and your mercy. We know that you are a loving God we know that you created us with good intention and good purpose. But sometimes, God, we get confused and our heart longs for things that are, that are contrary to you. And so in this moment, Father, we just confess and we come to you and we say, show us your mercy. And we appeal to the name of Jesus. And we ask, Father, because of his righteousness and because of his perfection, see us as new. Let us have the life you created us for. Give us the wisdom we need to live in that way. Father, let us find fulfillment in you and in your voice. Let us pursue that, ignoring and eschewing all the other voices in this world that promise things they can't deliver. Father, let us know Jesus and be found in him. In Jesus' name, that we pray these things, amen.